All right, everybody, this is Craig from the Pacific War Channel. I am joined here yet again by my friend Ian. How are you? Hello. Not too bad. And yourself? Pretty good. Today, we're going to be speaking about a, I guess you could say, lesser-known battle during the Pacific War. The Battle of Wake Island. the first. It is technically, I, I guess you could What's, say, for uh, the Americans. Wouldn't it be considered more Wake Atoll? It's more of an atoll than an island? Yeah, um, I don't know why. Whenever you look it up, it's called the Battle of Wake Island. It is an atoll, and it is made up of uh, three little there, islands. Because yeah. uh, I've heard it called the Battle of Wake Atoll. I've heard it Wake Island, and yeah, I, I guess, you know. I think, for the same thing. you know, I think when it comes down to it back in the day, I think like people just didn't know what an atoll was. So no one used the term. But yeah, Wake <laughs> is an atoll. <laughs> I mean, uh, actually, you know, yeah. starting right there, we'll just explain like Wake Island for those who don't Wake Atoll. <laughs> for those who don't know, it's in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. It's made up of three very, very tiny little islands. So you got Wake proper, Pele and Wilkie's. Hey everyone, I just wanted to let you know I now have a Patreon account found at www.patreon.com slash the Pacific War channel. Over there you can find exclusive Patreon episodes and podcasts based on suggestions from patrons, and other benefits like early access to all of my content, live hangouts, your name in the end credits, and much, much more. So please go check it out. And, uh... It's, uh surrounded by, uh, coral, I believe. That's yeah. what, like, makes it the, uh... An atoll? Yeah, I think technically, I yeah, like, it's surrounded by coral. Like, uh, uh, yeah, you think nothing of uh, coral, but it makes landing very difficult. Oh, yeah. Like, if you don't have, like, proper uh, mapping of it, like, you can, your transport ships can go straight into, a, like, beach itself on a, a coral that you, you can't see. Yep. During the uh, Marianas, Carolines, Gilberts campaigns, the Americans yeah, yeah, always the, uh, got screwed over by coral. Yeah, like corals stretching out, and then all of a sudden they have to, you know, unload their troops, you know, half a half a mile out, and, you know, they're easy targets at that point. Yeah. And, uh, you know, to just, uh, before we even jump into what exactly this battle is, you know, explain how, how does one find themselves in a battle on such a small, kind of insignificant little island out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, uh, especially right in the heat of the attack on Pearl Harbor. Mm-hmm. So prior to this, the Wake Atoll was kind of, you know, it had a very small garrison, uh, and it was originally elements of the 1st Marine Defense Battalion. This was led by Major Devereux, and uh, it was no more than like uh, 450, uh, you know, men. Uh, it's, a very, it's a very small atoll. Uh, it's kind of insignificant, like I keep saying. Uh, but it did have, you know, a little airfield on it, and they did have uh, Marine Corps fighters, so squadron VMF two on one was there, so they had uh, Wildcats, you know, back in the day. Yeah, they had uh, a dozen F four F Wildcats there. That uh, I believe they were uh, reinforced with the Wildcats like a week before mm -hmm. Pearl Harbor from the Enterprise. Yep, and just like they're lucky they have Wildcats and not Buffaloes. Yeah, especially at the very beginning of the war, a lot of uh, a yeah. lot of people were stuck with buffaloes. Uh, ironically, the Dutch um, yeah. and the Dutch East Indies ended up with a ton of buffaloes, but they they did pretty well with them comparatively. I mean, against zero fighters, it would have really sucked. You got to adapt to your situation, but uh, the F4F has a a much better time against the zeros than uh, 
the F2 uh, Buffalo. That's yeah, for sure. I mean, it's, it's of course, it's a slower aircraft. Uh, it cannot maneuver anywhere near uh, the level of the Zero, but no. the Wildcat had armor and the Zero did not. So the Wildcat had kind of an advantage in that regard. Could take a few more hits. That actually proved to be decisive, yeah, though, for a lot of pilots. Yeah. And on they just had to change their, their tactics around. Oh yeah, you know, when the thatch weave was designed, that really was a game changer. Yeah, there was, exactly. You know, that, that allowed the Americans to use what was an inferior aircraft, but pretty well against their enemy, and they did take down a lot of zeros. Uh, at the Battle of the Midway, for yeah, example. we really wouldn't see, a, yeah, we really wouldn't see a, a change in that until I think it's it's around 43, like you have the uh, uh, the Corsairs coming into play. In and the, the Hellcats. Uh, the, yeah, the the F6F Hellcat coming in as well. Uh, I, I mean, um, it's an argument amongst the some historians. Like, what was the better plane, the mm. the F4U Corsair or the uh, the F6F? I mean, either way, they were both both were great, amazing in the theater. Yeah, and it's the old you know Army Navy kind of stuff. There, <laughs> everyone's mm. gonna attack each other. But uh, yeah, so they they had a. 12 or more of these uh, Wildcats. So, I mean, it wasn't undefended, but, I mean, compared to what's going to be thrown at it, it's, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's not much. Well, they were, they were, in comparison, you know, lightly defended. They had, like, 450 Marines on uh, the Atoll, yeah. just a dozen uh, fighters, a few shore uh, batteries, I believe close to 1,000 civilian contractors, though. Yeah, so... At, at this time, they were... Uh, trying to refit the atoll it used to be an old uh, Pan Am refueling station, mm -hmm. and they were trying to refit that into for its military purposes. Uh, so thus, the the contractors are there. Yeah. So just before the war, and especially with you know, with the paint on the wall, the Americans knew something was going to happen very soon. So they were building it up, uh, even in '41. Mm -hmm. So they were you know they had an airfield. Uh, they were building up a seaplane base, a submarine base building out the lagoon so, you know, could just inhabit some more vessels. Because it was it was a forward base in the Pacific, one of the most forward ones. So yeah. it was very useful in that regard. Yeah, it's uh, a 1,000 miles west of uh, Pearl. Uh, just for reference, uh, Midway is about 500 west of Pearl. Mm -hmm. It is a little bit of a distance away, and which will come into play uh, later on. And yeah, like you said, as far as defenses are concerned, it had a few 5-inch uh, guns and a few 3-inch guns, but uh, nothing overly, you know, zealous. It's uh, it's a small atoll. Yeah. When, when you're trying to defend a, against a fleet, you know, like yeah. you're, you're throwing pebbles at uh, a battleship at that point. Mm-hmm. And, um, excuse me. When Pearl Harbor is attacked on December the 8th, uh, although this, I guess this is a little bit confusing. Um, technically, Wake is in a different time zone, so December, December seventh. Yeah, but for uh, for for Wake, because of the the time zone, it would actually technically be the eighth uh, for them. Fair, see, yeah, yeah, I I never think of that. It's like yeah. when I I wrote a script for KNG and I was talking about the the first engagements, which is in Malaya, and when you're talking about the attack on Pearl Harbor, it's yep, the same situation yeah, because that had it had already happened almost. Yeah. Yeah, it gets wonky with the time zones. But yeah, December the 7th doesn't change anything. Yeah, so right when Pearl Harbor is being attacked, uh, Wake is uh, attacked almost at the exact same time. I mean, they're not full-on invaded at the offset, but they're, they get a lashing right away. 
So uh, it's yeah. a, a squadron of um, uh, medium range Japanese uh, bombers hit it. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, they're Nell bombers. It's only like a dozen or so. Uh, they they just happened to be lucky that they had uh, was it like they had four Wildcats in the air at the time. Uh, yeah, they... two went into uh, uh, were being prepped to go into action as soon as the the bombers came over, but weren't lucky enough. Yeah, they uh, they would be. I think it's a uh, twelve or so wildcats are caught in the ground, so they're completely annihilated by what is a wave of thirty-four Nell bombers, and they're coming out of the twenty-fourth uh, air flotilla. And, uh, bas- and this is happening all all over the Pacific. You know, the, yeah. the the Japanese air blitzkrieg, like they're hitting everyone's uh, uh, ports. Uh, well, especially their their airfields, and a lot of the the planes are caught on the ground and. You know, this happens uh, yeah. as well at Wake. So instantaneously, I'm sorry, simultaneously, you have Clark Field in the Philippines is smashed. You have in Malaya multiple airfields, and even in Singapore, it's getting hit by bombers. Uh, Thailand is invaded, and their airfield was lightly hit, not significantly by any means. Uh, yeah, so all simultaneously, the Japanese basically spread every asset they have outside of the China War to hit so many places all at once mm-hmm. while also invading places. It's an incredible feat of scheduling. It's an impressive yeah. feat, yeah. And uh, Wake Island is going to be one of those, although the actual invasion comes a little bit later, but they're hit from the offset. Yeah, they're, they're softening it. Like you... Plans yeah. are in motion. Uh, so the guy that's given the job to take down Wake, uh, he's from the 4th Fleet, and he's Vice Admiral Inoue Shigeyoshi. And uh, he's actually being given the job to take Wake in Guam. So Guam, of course, is, is um, not a identical story, a similar story to what happens at Wake. Now, Inoue, he plans to conduct three days of aerial bombardment of the atolls. So he's going to hit, you know, the three islands, Wilkes Island, Wake proper, and probably Pili a little bit, although I don't think there's much on Pili. And at his disposal, he's got about a handful of cruisers, some destroyers, armed merchantmen, and, you know, just uh, three submarines. Uh, he wouldn't have a significant it's not a force. Large fleet. No, of course not. Not for this. Uh, it's This yeah, is like a secondary it's target. cruisers as well. He, yeah. he, like his largest ship is a light cruiser, I believe. Uh, mm-hmm. He's not, not being given none much. None of these ships are specialized in shore bombardment. Uh, and also at this time, the Japanese, uh, well, they never really... They never perfected that. Took to shore bombardment. Yeah, they never really took to it. Uh, they always uh, put the emphasis on an aerial bombardment. That's enough. Yeah. And they never seem to be able to coordinate shore bombardment with landings. Yeah, you see that in uh, the Guadalcanal not campaign. Not in the same regard as the Americans. Oh no, the Amer- Well, the Americans. I mean, they, it's a rough yeah. learning curve, of course, for they both mastered- sides. Yeah, but they they somewhat mastered it. Yeah, well, you know, it's funny with the Americans. At first, they believe, oh, you bring in the battleships and the cruisers, the big guns that you got, and you're going to do the most amount of damage. Mm-hmm. But by the end of the war, it's actually destroyers that turn out to be the better um, bombarders for islands. Yeah, because they can get close, more accurate. Yeah. Because no matter what, you know, by the end of the war, the Japanese are hiding in concrete bunkers and underground and stuff. You're, it doesn't matter if you're using 16-inch shells. Like, it's... Uh, they just... They don't have the power, unless it like lands, you know, perfect, and, yeah, like, directly on it, yeah, perfect hit. And those are, are so rare. And uh, so back to the story, um, in a way, he's got about 450 SNLF, um, 
Some people just call these Japanese Marines. I remember a month back a guy actually cussed me out on YouTube for referring to SNLF as Marines. It's kind of a contentious issue. They're not technically Marines, but honestly, I think you could give it the benefit of the doubt. Just call them Marines now and then to make it easier. They're special naval units, so the Navy had to come up with basically their own soldiers, and yeah. Uh, essentially, you know, they're, they're Marines. The British had their Marines. Yeah. The Dutch had their Marines. Like, they didn't necessarily call them Marines, but that was the, um, you know, the role that those units filled. Yeah, but I, I obviously the viewer who had cussed me out, he's an American, and the United States Marines and their, like, the history behind their development is unique, and other nations did not have the yeah. same experience. So, yeah, I understand they are not, the tra- in the traditional sense, they were not Marines. Yeah. And uh, so he's got this big-ass mission he's going to be doing. So he bombs the uh, the atolls with 34 Nell bombers. And the American defenders, on the other hand, uh, so they're just finding out, hey, Pearl Harbor's been attacked uh, right early in the morning. And you know, as you had said, four Wildcats were launched to patrol, you know, kind of the area. But uh, unfortunately, two of them are going to get hit in the process while the rest on the ground are completely destroyed. Now, the medium bombers, they had slipped past most of the American patrols and they managed to, you know, destroy, like I said, the Wildcats on the ground. They sunk uh, the Nisqually, so a ship. They hit some of the camps, you know, the defenses, the seaplane facilities. They made strafing runs, probably. They probably did a lot of damage to surface structures and they managed to kill about 20 plus people. And wounded many others. Not, not to mention, a lot of the air crew was caught on the ground yeah. on the airfield, like prepping the planes to take off. Uh, yeah. So a lot of the the mechanics, the uh, the pilots, they they were caught and they were strafed to death. Oh yeah. Later on. It was tragic, uh, but um, the Marines, mm-hmm. their garrison buildings were not hit, so the Marines were left intact. Now, uh, Same with the, uh, the shore batteries. Yeah, the shore batteries were, I think all of them were fully intact, and they will be used. And uh, yeah, like you had said, it was originally, uh, they had a Pam Am facility, so that was uh, destroyed as well. And um, apparently two Japanese bombers were shot down by the two Wildcats that were up in the air, which, uh, well, it's a pretty impressive feat given the disparity in units. And uh, the governmental house uh, was uh, hit alongside a few villages. Now, the actual invasion force is going to be led by Rear Admiral Sadamichi Kijioka. And uh, he had a light cruiser, six destroyers, and two transports that were going to carry about 560 SNLF. And uh, they, uh, the plan did not go well for them. Not at all. It's pretty surprising f- uh, for the Japanese what happens. So they run into a... Well, I think they were, uh, they were surprised by the, the resistance of the Americans, for sure. And that, that's going to play out uh, for the next couple of weeks, for sure. Yeah. Uh, and it's going to play out in propaganda. You know, the United uh, States Ro- used this yeah. as propaganda. Yeah, big time. Uh, I don't know if it's too early to mention, but Roosevelt had uh, spoken of uh, Wake Atoll like this is the, the Pacific Alamo. Yeah, he made it the he Alamo, for hold. sure. And, uh, I mean, it has kind of that same feeling of the Alamo because, I mean, it's an impossible situation there is no way they can actually defend it but they are the first ones who are put into the fight and uh, they put up a hell of a fight yeah that, that's why i was so excited to do this one because like i've thought about wake before uh well many times and it is one of those uh battles in the uh, in the pacific and, and certainly the first one of its kind 
where against all odds, you know, the the Americans are are defending and it's a very valiant defense. Like Oh yeah. So uh like I said before, uh as for the American side, they got 450 Marines and they're led by Major General James Devereux. And uh, what he does is he orders his six five-inch coastal guns to, you know, bombard the invasion fleet as it's approaching. But he also orders his machine gunners to hold their fire until the enemy gets just within range of the coastal defenses. So he's basically going for a shock and awe, you know, pretend like they're not even doing anything until they come up close. Mm -hmm. Now, the IGN destroyer, Hayate, she takes some direct hits from the coastal guns at a distance of just 4,000 yards or so, right into her magazines, so critical hit she yeah, explodes uh, she was uh she was turning broadside to bring all of her guns, guns down onto yep. uh wake and the the shore uh gunners used because they had been in the process of ranging the incoming destroyer the, mm -hmm. the first few salvos had uh had missed but they were leading it into it and when the hayate went broadside it was in perfect range and they had fixed the the, the firing solution on it and perfect hit hit one of the magazine like you said and, yeah uh sunk uh, shortly after yeah for like video game nerds out there if you're playing like let's say you're playing a uh like a fighter simulator where you're two aircraft shooting at each other the old you know you shoot in front of where the aircraft is going kind of thing where it's like every shot you're Lead making yeah you're leading you're needling the target as you used to say so you're putting these yeah, shots just trying to aim the, yeah yeah, and they're using um, the splashes as mm -hmm. their, uh, uh, I guess, markers, their target indicator. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, exactly. And you know, with a five seven inch gun, they're they're fairly accurate. It's not like a sixteen where you're expecting accuracy within uh, five hundred meters or so. And uh, most importantly, something no one thinks about is whenever you talk about naval combat, usually you're talking about two ships who are both moving in different directions at different speeds, and you have to calculate that. But if you're a coastal gun, you're a stationary thing, you're just calculating yeah. very few things. So coastal guns are devastating if they can shoot at a ship. Yeah. And also another general rule when it comes to uh, ship combat, and you know, this stems for if anyone plays like a naval video game, like I'll just use for reference like World of Warships, <laughs> there's a golden rule. You never go broadside. Like, well, <laughs> yeah. first of all, Ships, the majority of their armor is concentrated in the bow. Like yeah. that is where they're designed to take hits and reflect and absorb the the hit. But broadside, they're very lightly armored. Uh, yes, you can bring all your guns to bear, but you make yourself extremely vulnerable at the same time. Oh and yeah, that's essentially what the Hayate did, putting itself broadside, thinly armored, um, and yeah, a lucky hit strikes a magazine right away. At that point, you know you're done. Yeah, she explodes and she sinks within two minutes. It's a brutal loss. So she uh, she's actually going to have a single survivor. And she became the first Japanese surface ship to be sunk in the war. Because yeah, uh, yeah. this has to be the first one. The Enterprise, uh, she ends up hitting a submarine. So technically it's not a surface ship. So, But that would have been the first Japanese ship to uh, be sunk by an American. Yes, you could say that was, you know, the first... IGN vessel that got yeah uh, shot or shot down. And uh, the uh, another coastal gun hits the Ubadi several times, and actually four Wildcats jump into the fight, and they manage to sink the destroyer Kisaragi by dropping bombs on her stern and exploding and exploding her depth charges. 
And you got to imagine that's a hell of a shot. So you are draw you are dive bombing using a wildcat, which is not a perfect dive bomber by any means. <laughs> yeah, they they both had uh, the the wildcats only had a hundred pound bombs on them. Uh, yeah, tiny. And they're fifty cal machine guns, and they're definitely not uh, geared for taking on ships. But at the same time, a fifty cal uh, machine gun can be effective in strafing the decks. Yeah. Got an, again, it's another huge lucky hit. It exploded one of the depth charges in the Kasanagi. And uh, the Japs, Japanese at this point, they're suffering 407 casualties. They haven't even landed. So it's, it's a hell of a surprise to them. And uh, they, were, they were actually yeah, forced to withdraw. They're putting smoke screens. Uh, yeah, they're, they all start putting down smoke screens and withdrawing out. And... Yeah, they kind of have like a, a yeah. battle with the coastal guns and they're shooting at them. But they, they back off because, I mean, they, they just took two losses. It's actually very significant for a small force. And losses are yeah, people and money. Underestimated the defenses. Yeah, and then uh, famously, the commander uh, who was on the scene, Commander Cunningham, he uh, he would shout out, you know, send us more Japs. That that was something that was sent over to Roosevelt. Oh yeah, yeah. When uh, uh, when Pearl asked, um, yeah, uh, what do you need? As uh, supplies, yeah, reinforcement wise, and uh, yeah, uh, replied with, yeah, just send more Japs. Yeah, no, they needed supplies. They actually needed to get taken off the island. Yeah, to be honest, did. yeah. And uh, there would be enormous efforts to get them. A thousand miles away. Yeah, there there was enormous efforts to get them off. Uh, it's a yeah, well, it's a, definitely a logistics challenge. And well, it's like yeah, at Pearl Harbor, you can't count on basically any war vessels going out. You're not going to risk them, even if you have them. So they, very little in the decision making. Which we will see come uh, coming up soon. Yeah. So uh, the Japanese actually back off. They're licking their wounds. And uh, there's other operations going on all over the Pacific, like in the Marshall Islands and stuff. So, you know, they live to till another day, as you say. Uh, Devereaux, he moves uh, the location of his batteries to the east end of Pele to avoid the complete destruction of them. Because, you know, obviously the Japanese, they now know where some of the weapons are. So they're obviously going to send uh, yeah. bombers in to hit them. And uh, the Americans, you know. Yeah, Exactly. They were taking losses, but it's not over for Wake, surprisingly. Now, December the 11th, Admiral Kojiaka's invasion force, you know, they had lost now the destroyers Hayate and Kasaragi. And uh, he's got about 9 out of his 13 ships damaged at this point. So, um, it's not looking good. He also lost a ton of men, almost 500. Now, this is, uh, interestingly enough, if you look at the Japanese conquest within just the first few weeks of uh, the Pacific War, this is basically the only place where Japan suffers technically a loss. So, yeah, go awake. Yeah. The Marines are obviously, yeah. you know, their morale's up. It's not over yet. Well, it's definitely not over yet, but, you know, the, the, the morale is good for the, the, the Marines. The morale is up, but the... Uh, there, there is a certain certainty that they're aware of that well, reinforcement is a thousand miles away. They're, they're at this point, you know, they're going to be running low on uh, supplies, ammunition. Uh, yeah. Well, they, they know, they understand that their ammunition, their medical supplies, uh, food, water, it is in a limited supply. I mean, like you, you had said, you said it perfectly. This is the Alamo. It is a losing battle. Yeah. And they're they're down to uh, two fighters at this point. So basically, their air cover is inexistent at this point. Yeah, yeah, no, they have no significant air cover, so they're not they going to be fighting. They yeah. know it's just the beginning. Yeah, 
but uh, there, there's no hiding. They're not they're not swimming away. Uh, they don't have uh, enough uh, naval vessels to get off the island uh, and regroup somewhere else. So it's either stand or surrender, and uh, none of them had the uh, the inclination to surrender. That's for sure. So within the two weeks, the Japanese are basically winning every single battle across the board, invading multiple places. This three-day-long bombardment that was supposed to turn into an invasion of Wake, it failed. So that led, you know, someone like uh, a sergeant on Devereux's staff to conclude, I am very certain every man on the island grew a good two inches at least. Several people stopped by congratulate Devereux. He had some kind of hope. We felt great. We were Marines, weren't we? And I'm pretty sure I grabbed that quote from Ian Toll's book, because I think that was my main source when I did this script a long time ago. When I was writing for Kings and Generals, I have a ton of notes from all the stuff I ever wrote, and uh, Wake was a pretty cool one. Mm-hmm. And yeah, like we said, the truth is that Wake can't hold out much longer. It's impossible. They only got two aircraft remaining, short ammunition, equipment, probably on uh, food as well. And uh, manpower, of course, uh, everyone's getting wounded. If uh, they actually, but it is a massive yeah. PR success at at this time. Like as oh, everywhere yeah. else in the Pacific, they're they're losing. Wake held out, and uh, in the midst of you know the attack on Pearl Harbor, they needed something to you know tell the public like, hey, we're not out of this fight. Like, oh yeah, and we're still brave. We're still holding out in certain uh, parts of the theater, and. Wake became like the poster child of uh, American resistance. Yeah, the uh, the propaganda of the day was just promoting Wake, promoting Wake, promoting Wake, because everywhere else, you know, they were losing. So it was heavily used. And uh, at this point, Admiral Kajioka, he, he knows he had underestimated Wake's defensive capabilities. And, uh, you know, embarrassingly, he had to limp off. But despite his complete failure, uh, he was not relieved of command. Instead, Admiral Inoue, he offered him uh, some more assistance for a second invasion. Now, at this point, you know, they've concluded uh, a lot of their primary targets, so Pearl Harbor, Guam, the Gilberts, all of this is kind of done in a week. So now they got, you know, some more stuff on hand to throw at Wake. So Inoue is going to be assigned a handful of cruisers, some destroyers, transports, and two aircraft carriers, the Soryu and Hiryu, with plenty more of these Japanese SNLF. Kajioka now has much better odds. I mean, he's going to literally overwhelm Wake. So it's looking like Wake is doomed. And our uh, good friend, Admiral Frank Fletcher of Task Force 14. Sorry, I just... This guy's been on my mind lately. I have a lot of people who, you know, they ask me all these questions about admirals. And uh, yeah, I gotta say, there's a lot of hate for this guy. (laughs) There really is, and there's not much that's well known about him. Like... He was a senior admiral. It still boggles my mind. Yeah, he's an extremely senior admiral. Like, he was Spurance's superior at the Battle of Midway, and Mm -hmm. Fletcher is never mentioned at all, even though Fletcher was in command of the operation. They hate him. Uh, Like, he's hated. I I have to say it. Any book you read, he is loathed. He's he's a pre-World War II admiral, in my mind. Uh, Like, he's extremely passive. Uh, He's cautious. Yes. Which... um, like World War Two really uh, was about being aggressive. That what was yeah, what was needed was definitely a more aggressive, calculating um, uh, commander, and 
you know, you, we have Halsey and Spruance, these guys. Like, yep. I'm not going to say that they're brash, that they, they jump into the Compared fight. Compared to Frank, play, yeah, yeah. Properly thinking about it. But Fletcher was overly cautious. And in that sense, he never committed to anything. Yeah, he we're, actually... We're uh, going to see that soon. He gets his ass shipped up uh, up north uh, for the Aleutians because he's simply not aggressive enough in the uh, South Pacific. And at Guadalcanal, he makes some... I would say pretty heinous orders. Uh, he, yeah. he pulls out yeah. too uh, quickly. Uh, pulling, yeah, when he, he, he pulls out too quickly, like just far too cautious. Yes, at the time, the aircraft carriers, uh, the American aircraft carriers, are their, uh, their best strategic asset, and they are coveted and uh, guarded more than anything else. Yeah, uh, of course. I mean, even even here at, uh, at Wake Island, like... Uh, Kimmel, who's still uh, Sinpak at the time, he's uh, he's telling Fletcher, oh, oh, he's telling everyone, we have to defend Wake yeah. to the best of our ability, but do not risk any of the carriers. Uh, like even even one carrier is, I, I hate to say, worth more than the fifteen hundred uh, men. Uh, yeah, defending Wake. That's what ends up happening. Actually, it's the thousand, the thousand civilians, five hundred. Uh, military personnel in week it's do what you can but do not risk a carrier actually it's interesting you you bring up kimmel because uh, people probably don't even think about this but he it's, it's not as if kimmel was relieved of command like right after pearl harbor he uh, technically yeah. went on a little uh, bit longer another two three weeks i yeah. believe like uh, yes the the writing was on the wall he was going to oh, be replaced but yeah. still he was the effective commander at the time and well, I mean, it's seniority and everything. He didn't go, but, on, yeah. he didn't go on vacation right away. <laughs> no, I'm. Geez. I should say vacation, but like. But yeah, so uh, Kimmel, like preceding uh, the attack on Pearl Harbor, he had actually ordered Admiral Wilson Brown's Task Force Eleven with the uh, carrier USS Lexington to perform a raid on the island of Jalut in the Marshalls, kind of as a diversion to help protect Fletcher, who he hoped would go over. And you know, relieve Wake Island in some way, like get them supplies, or I, I would have assumed get get the guys out. But uh, Husband Kimmel, he gets relieved on December the eighteenth. Um, not that that necessarily changes plans but, or anything, but, but Nimitz yeah. only arrive Nimitz only arrives in Hawaii later, so Kimmel yeah. is still effectively uh, in charge of the yeah. the operations at this time until he's formally relieved by uh, Nimitz, and that would happen uh, a week later. Yeah, so in the meantime, uh, Kimmel's going to still be there, but uh, technically Vice Admiral William S. Pye, he's going to be the acting commander That's, until yeah. Nimitz comes. Yeah. And Nimitz will get there on December the 31st. And uh, yeah, no, Nimitz, uh, the, the choice for, for Nimitz to be the guy in the Pacific is fateful, very fateful. Ended he up being a great choice. Uh, he didn't expect it. Yeah. But uh, it was under Roosevelt's uh, personal recommendation. That's something people don't know. Roosevelt was a Navy guy. He was big on the Navy. Yep. Oh, he always yeah. kept in touch with the Navy. That's a big thing about Roosevelt. Yeah, just like his uh, relative, Theodore Roosevelt. Mm -hmm. Both both Navy guys. Uh, yeah, Roosevelt was, uh, was he, he was, at one point, he was the undersecretary of the Navy, uh, he was the naval attaché to yeah. to England, and this this leads to his first uh, meeting with uh, Churchill, and they they get along. Oh, he met Churchill. Because Churchill being first, he met Churchill before the war. Then. Yeah, oh, uh, I didn't they, know that. Yeah, uh, that was the first time they met. Um, it was, uh, I believe, it was early '30s that Roosevelt was. Uh, it, it was the '20s. 
mid twenties or early thirties, uh, and Roosevelt was acting as naval attaché to to England, and this is after he was Under Secretary of uh, the Navy, and Churchill was still First Lord of the Admiralty. So they they both had similar postings, yeah. and so they got along that way. Oh, that's interesting. I had no idea they had an early meeting. <laughs> well, that was the first meeting, and they would not meet again until the war. The situation. Uh, actually, no. Their second meeting. Their second meeting was uh, six months before the attack on Pearl. Sorry, yeah, uh, that's <laughs> no. Uh, well, uh, so the Vi- vice admiral Pine, um, when he is given effective command, he has some reservations about Kimmel's plan to relieve Wake. He deems it too risky. He um, apparently. Uh, I read he was like a gun-shy kind of guy when it came to engaging the Japanese at the beginning of the war. And uh, he had remarked the Japanese, you know, like even before they had gone to war, he had made a remark like the Japanese will not go to war with the United States because the United States is too big, too powerful, and too strong. So I think he was like many other people shocked by the power of the IGN. I mean, everybody kind of would. It's funny. If you look at the racial attitudes, it's like everybody was shit talking the Japanese. Yeah. And then after a few weeks of the war, everybody goes like 180 and they start talking about how the Japanese are superhumans and like they're in, they're like the super jungle fighters. We can't beat them out in their element and all this stuff. Like all this weird stuff comes out. Yeah. They, uh, they change their we, tunes. We've talked about this, uh, the sentiment many times, you know, this yep. um, illusion that the Japanese weren't great fighters and you know the americans were superior in every aspect and you know it would if it came to a battle it wouldn't even be a fight i mean uh that tone quickly changed it's kind of funny because and unfortunately unfortunately like you had said like uh he was gun shy unfortunately the the american navy is plagued with commanding officers who are extremely cautious and gun shy and oh yeah it's only later on the war that uh they get replaced the the more aggressive commanders come into prominence but it was against their their naval doctrine at the time to be aggressive oh yeah especially submarines uh what's yeah yeah i'm trying to think of that once uh submarine captain he was extremely aggressive at the beginning of the war and like he was extremely successful in uh um sinking multiple Japanese ships and that's with flawed torpedoes uh, and like he was almost reprimanded because he was yeah, putting yeah. The, the sub into too much danger but in his mind and he had remarked about it that it's our job to sink Japanese vessels we're never going to sink Japanese vessels if we're too cautious yeah the uh, the pre-world war two war if we're too cautious the pre-world war two doctrine for submarine warfare for the united states was that the submarine was a reconnaissance vehicle and that it was vulnerable to aerial attacks like they thought the the way a submarine would get taken down was from aerial attacks so that submarines shouldn't surface often often and it was completely backwards uh, it's actually it's in the the invasion of the philippines they had a, a ton of submarines under admiral hart and he like he had to scream at his submarine commanders like what are you doing you're barely attacking the enemy you know despite the obvious torpedo problems and it was just pre-world war ii doctrine they were they're idiots Uh, they were not using submarines uh, accordingly but uh yeah so uh when pi comes when pi comes into uh, power his hesitancy kind of screws up the whole relief force thing and uh 
he does allow the relief force to depart on December the 15th, <clears throat> but on the 20th, he receives a report that the Japanese are going to be renewing their assault on Wake and that there's possibly one to two uh, Japanese carriers that are going to be, you know, providing support for the invasion. So he basically, he just tells Fletcher he's, he's going to call off the operation to get back to Pearl Harbor. But if I remember correctly, I thought I was reading, it must, it probably was in Ian Toll's book. I think he hesitated and it caused like a one to two day delay or something. And that really screwed up everything because technically the force would have got there in time, like a day before or something, and they would have got the guys out. Yeah, because um, uh, they were, uh, like the Lexington group uh, was supposed to be uh, performing an operation on the Marshall Islands, and it gets uh, abandoned and rerouted, yeah. but uh, slightly too late. And I have an interesting quote here. It's interesting because it's Fletcher being aggressive, I'd say. Uh, apparently, when Fletcher was given the uh, the news by Pike, he was, like, really angry, seen by uh, his staff members on deck. And uh, he tried to refuse the order. And apparently, he said, the news rocked through the ship. The fleet, you know, re was received with curses. All the men were, you know, hanging their heads and they were weeping around him. Uh I find it interesting, given that it's Admiral Fletcher, because Admiral Fletcher always seems to want to just, like, save his ships and pull out. But I guess in this circumstance, everyone's blood was pretty hot, so even Fletcher wanted to get into it. So, yeah, he was pretty angry. And uh, later on, FDR, he received, when he receives word, you know, of the, the fall of Wake, he calls the news, uh, it's worse than Pearl Harbor for him. And I mean, I guess in a lot of ways, because he had, you know, effectively used such a large propaganda campaign to promote these Marines defending Wake. It really was such a loss. But back to the action. On December the 22nd, Kajioka, he returned to Wake, this time with, you know, Soryu and Hiryu, and uh, they launched their aircraft to take out, you know, what was basically just, what, two aircraft on Wake that could fight back. So this is uh, 33 dive bombers and six fighters that attack Wake. And uh, the last two Wildcats are taken out in the process. Well, hmm? It's uh, it's on the December 20th, uh, Cunningham reports that his remaining fighter is so shot full of uh, yeah. holes, it reminds him of Swiss cheese. Swiss so cheese. At, at this point, all his fighters are down. Yeah. Uh, but actually, the, the fighters do uh, fight back. Uh, it, it earns some respect from the Japanese. They were shocked that they, they were brave enough to come out and fight anyways. But, uh, yeah, so the uh, the surviving guys, like the air crews, the pilots, you know, that don't have any aircraft anymore, they're just given a gun and told to go over with the guys to protect mm -hmm. the island, which is really rough. So now the Americans are going to prepare for a ground invasion. And uh, now, you know, this time, Kajioka is like, okay, so these five-inch coastal guns, you know, we're, we know they're there, we know what they're going to do to us. So a gun duel begins, this little invasion, as... Uh, a lot of the men, <clears throat> excuse me, start to land on the south shore of the island. Now, Kajioki, he staged a diversionary bombardment of Pele Island. So in the dark, and it's, uh, it's a rainy day, on the early morning of December the 23rd, at this point, it's like at 2.35 a.m., the Japanese SNLF, there's about 580 of them that begin to land ashore on the south shore of Wake Atoll proper, while another 100 guys, they're going to land on Wilkie's Island. So if anyone uh, wants to look at a map, you know, basically the way the atoll works, it's three atolls. Wilkie's, I mean, if you're looking at it from, like, the point of view I got, it's, like, to the left, I guess you'd say. And uh, Lieutenant Robert Hanna. Sorry, 
Oh, Sorry, if, yeah. if I could just excuse you just for a second while uh, we were just talking about the fighters and I'm reading here on the 20th. Uh, uh, where was it? I was just reading. Oh, yeah. Uh, they had three airworthy planes. By the second week mm -hmm. of the war, the shortages became critical and the flying aircraft had become Frankenstein's monsters, rattling, <laughs> bullet-ridden, patched over amalgamations apart, scavenged from the wreck, scattered over the airfield. Uh, on December 20th, two planes were capable of getting off the ground. I mean, that's resourcefulness right there. Yeah, is that from Ian Toll? Yeah, yeah that's Ian Toll. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he he, yeah, he has a trilogy. I just I, I had that thought. Ah, that's great. Yeah, he has a for for those interested in reading about the Pacific War. It's a it's a recent trilogy that he wrote, and it's it's a very good account of the Pacific War, but it's very very skewed to the naval actions. Like that's the more he's. It seems the author is much more interested in talking about the naval actions. Um. Well, the the second book in the in the the trilogy basically. Uh, encompasses a lot of the the landings yes it's from a yeah the shooting tides uh, yeah i guess you could say that's still naval perspective um uh, the majority of the pacific war was it started off from a, a naval yeah, yeah of course yeah and uh so Anyways, yeah sorry for interrupting you no, no. you were saying uh uh, Lieutenant Robert Hanna, he's manning a three-inch gun. He begins to fire on, like, patrol boats that are being used to transport the Japanese. And uh, he was backed up by some grounded pilots with him. Uh, one was named Major Putnam. Hanna was able to take out two Japanese patrol boats, or, you know, you call them PT boats, like the American PT boats of the World War II. Mm -hmm. And uh, still a lot of the Japanese managed to get onto the island, and they managed to cut the communications. So the Japanese at this point, they're landing at various different locations. And Devereux's men are, you know, they're in their gun pits trying to meet the invaders, you know, as infantry. The grounded pilots and the surviving ground personnel, they're in the heat of the combat too. So it's, it's a hell of a slug match. And uh, for 11 hours, it's a close range combat. So you've got Marines, you've got pilots, you've yeah, got even sailors. A, even a lot of the civilian contractors were, yep. were given weapons. And, well, yeah, of course. I mean, they'd rather go down fighting than, you know. Mm-hmm. So you got Marines, pilots, sailors, contractors, and they're do they're dishing out casualties upon the Japanese. Apparently, at one point, they wiped out a beachhead of nearly a hundred Japanese SNLF. So that's that's a lot of casualties, to be honest. Elsewhere, you know, they delivered some effective counterattacks against the Japanese, trying to overrun the airfield because obviously the primary target of the Japanese will be the airfield. It's the most prized possession on the atoll. And uh, they ended up doing one counterattack that forced the enemy about 900 yards. It's pretty impressive. Uh, but again, the Japanese had cut communications to like the three different uh, atolls. So Devru and uh, Commander Cunningham, which is kind of like his second in command, you could say, they're basically, they're in the dark. They don't know what's going on with the other side anymore. And um, can't do it justice here on this podcast, but there are some books that, you know, have primary accounts of uh, the fighting, and it's pretty, it's intense stuff. It, it was a really intense battle. Yeah. Uh, so Devereux, he orders his forces from Pele to mount a last kind of ditch defense, and uh, it's <clears throat> called the Potter's Line, this new line that they form, and it's right in front of his command post. A uh, smaller force of Japanese, they begin infiltrating undetected on the eastern end of the airfield by this point, and now they're advancing right up to what is called this uh, Potter's Line. Over at Wilkie's, Captain Platt, 
Okay. You were saying the Japanese took a lot of uh, casualties. I just got to mention on mm-hmm. uh, December 23rd, uh, their local time, uh, the Marines put up such a gallant defense and they claimed the lives of 700 to 900 uh, attackers. I mean, there are claims and yeah, but yeah, no, they were heavy. Hey you, you ever hear me talk about some great Pacific War movie or documentary like Pearl Harbor Minute by Minute over on Netflix and feel the urge to watch it for yourself? Uh oh, you live in Japan and your Netflix doesn't have it? Must suck to be you. Sucks to be me right now! Oh wow, season 4 of Demon Slayer is out. Oh wait, I can't watch it on Canadian Netflix, but it's over on Japan Netflix? Whatever will I do? Oh, no, no. <laughs> Being blocked from regional content? With private internet access, you too can watch Demon Slayer Season 4 by switching your IP address to Japan. Yes! Hell yeah! Why stop with Japan? With private internet access, you can change your IP address to over 84 different countries and every single US state, giving you access to region-restricted content all over the world. Nice. Many websites and services like Netflix are only accessible depending on your physical location, but private internet access helps you overcome these restrictions. Think about it, without private internet access, it's like paying for a TV series and missing out on the latest season. Shots fired, Demon Slayer on Canadian Netflix. Is that like a personal attack or something? Ever fear people are going to find your Google searches? Private internet access makes sure that those Google searches remain a buried secret as private internet access encrypts your internet access and has a no-logs policy. Think you're safe with the local coffee shop's free Wi-Fi? No, you are certainly not. Private internet access gives you more privacy features than any other software and real-time protection from malware and trackers. Giving you peace of mind knowing those Google searches remain seen by you and you alone. Private Internet Access has a no-log policy that they've defended in court, which means they are not storing any of your browsing data. Hey, are you like me using different devices under one household? Private Internet Access is available on all platforms and protects an unlimited amount of devices at the same time. I personally use Private Internet Access to unblock movies and TV series from all across the globe, and I sleep easier writing scripts for my YouTube channel and others knowing my data is secure. Look, this is a no-brainer. Sign up with my link in the description of this video to get 83% off, plus 4 months for free, so it ends up being only around $2 per month. Signing up for Private Internet Access is risk-free. There's a 30-day money-back guarantee, and 24-7 customer support is available. So don't forget to click www.piavpn.com slash the Pacific War channel and a big thanks to Private Internet Access for sponsoring this video. At uh, Wilkie's Island, uh, Captain Platt and his forces, they are completely surrounded. Uh, he had a much smaller force. Wilkie's is very, very small compared to the other two atolls. And it was surrounded by about 100 Japanese. And um, he performs a surprise attack, inflicting heavy casualties on them in the end still. Uh, back over to Cunningham. He starts to receive some reports, I would, I would presume, from runners about, you know, the status of the three islands. And um, they know that there's too many Japanese. They, they, they're not going to be able to do anything. So Cunningham, he independently radios Pearl Harbor, and he just says, enemy on island, issue in doubt. Uh, also, Japanese aircraft and warships, uh, they're beyond the range of, you know, the shore batteries now. And they're just shelling the hell out of known American positions. So the Americans are getting absolutely slogged. 
Devereux was uh, unable to contact... And meanwhile, they're ferrying barges of troop at the same time. Oh, yeah, there's just more and more men it's, coming. It's relentless. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's relentless. So overall, Commander... Uh, at this point, the, the carriers, the American carriers, were en route to uh, uh, reinforce and, and give aid. Yeah, well, unfortunately, it'll never happen. I think... Uh, I, w yeah, like, I, but as far as Wake knows, like, they are on the way. They're just... Keep holding out. Keep holding out. We're, yeah. You know, help is on the way. Yeah, yeah. They, for, for what the guys on the wake know, yeah. Uh, Devereaux, who's the overall commander at this point, he has no knowledge of what's going on with the sub-commanders and their various locations. He can basically just see whatever the hell's a few yards, you know, in front of his command post. And uh, he reflected later on this moment. He said this, I think, I tried to think of something we might do to keep going, but there wasn't anything. We could keep on expending lives, but we could not buy anything with them. It's basically him realizing it's it's a hopeless cause, and that you know maybe to just save lives he'll uh, turn in the towel. So well, you know the communications have been dark for a while. Commander Cunningham received word from the Navy that Task Force 14's relief fo relief force was not coming at this point. So <laughs> that's kind of the nail in the coffin, I guess you could say. Yeah, yeah, they were uh, there was concerns that. Uh, Japanese bomber, uh, bombers from the Marshall Islands uh, and Task Force 14, even if they were limited to 200 miles outside Wake, it would put them in range of the bombers from the Marshall Islands. And at that point, yeah, uh, no one wanted to risk the carriers. They were, they were just far too important. And, uh, you know, the, the reward of reinforcing and helping Wake, it, outweighed the risk mm -hmm. so in the end uh, Cunningham he gives uh, the order yeah, they were told to turn back in the end Cunningham gave the order to surrender at 7am uh, I believe it was their time because uh, he was just trying to save as many lives as possible uh, Devereux and Sergeant Donald Malik they would take out a white cloth tied to some mop handles and they would just walk across the island you know ordering survivors to lay down their weapons uh, the defenders, you know, they, they threw down all their rifles, they destroyed whatever they could, and, uh, well, they surrendered. Uh, Devereux approached to formally surrender to the Japanese, and uh, famously, a Japanese officer offered him a cigarette, and he said that he had attended San Francisco's fair in 1939. So it was a Japanese who had experience in America. So, um, in the end, on Wilkie's Island, the surprise counterattack that happened at the end, it killed uh, 100 Japanese at the cost of 11 Marines and 5 wounded. That's pretty insane numbers. Uh, overall, 49 U.S. Marines were dead. 70 U.S. civilians, including 10 indigenous Chamorros, were also uh, wounded and would become casualties. 433 US, U.S. personnel would survive and they would become captured. The Japanese paid pretty heavily for all said and done. They lost almost 400 men dead, and uh, 28 aircraft would be damaged. Probably some destroyed too, I'd imagine. And, you know, the, the <coughs> uh, couple uh, ships as well. like. Oh, yeah, yeah, not to mention the ships at the beginning. The, the, <laughs> yeah, the, the ships, yeah. And, you know, there are some claims that it was over a 1,000 Japanese forces from the invasion force that were redeemed casualties. Uh, so, like, it casualty-wise, it was definitely heavily in favor of the Americans. Uh, but, yes, it was a victory for the Japanese. 
Yep. Now, enraged by the amount of losses that were incurred, the Japanese treated their new prisoners, uh, military and civilian, brutally. They stripped them naked, mm-hmm. uh, many to their underwear, had their hands tied behind their backs with telephone wire, some with uh, other pieces of wire they could find around their necks, and uh, they kind of put them in positions so that they would be strangling themselves. Uh, they stole all their personal items, you know. They ignored any medical treatment of them, and then they were, you know, thrown into some concrete ammunition bunkers where they were suffocating from heat, and then they were herded over to uh, the airstrip, uh, where they were just kind of left in the hot sun for two days. Eventually, they were given food and clothes. Uh, Kuchiaka himself, he showed up in his white dress uniform and his, uh, his katana, and he read a proclamation to all the prisoners when they assembled. And a Japanese interpreter, he spoke to them all in English to say what the guy was saying. And he ended with, the emperor has graciously presented to you with your lives. And apparently some marines croaked back, well, thank the son of a bitch for me. For the next 10 days, the prisoners remained on the island uh, until January the 11th when Kajioka informed them that they're all going to get transferred. And the next day they were taken aboard the uh, Nitamaru, which was a transport ship where they were forced to run a gauntlet of, like, Japanese sailors cursing, spitting, and beating the shit out of them with, you know, belts and clubs and stuff, which is pretty normal. Mm. It's kind of, like, reminiscent of what will become the hell ships later, which will be worse. And uh, several, uh, they're, they're only given, like, you know, a few buckets to, like, go to the bathroom. There's no heat or ventilation. They're, like, crammed into, like, these little rooms with barely any food. So they're, they're treated like absolute shit. Uh, some of the prisoners are yeah, going to make it, it to... It's a very horrific experience for sure. Oh, yeah. Some of the prisoners are going to make it to Yokohama, and uh, others are going to go to Shanghai to do, like, forced labor. Uh, on voyage to China, Lieutenant Toshio Seto, uh, who is commander of the Japanese Guard Detachment, he selected five Americans, three sailors, and two Marines out of them at random. He blindfolded them, and uh, he brought them over on deck, and they were surrounded by 150 Japanese sailors, and the Americans were forced to kneel. As Sato read out, You have killed many Japanese soldiers in battle. For what you have done, you are now going to be killed as representatives of the American soldiers. So these five Americans, they were beheaded, and then they were used for bayonet practice before being tossed overboard. Which is all too typical during this war. Yeah. Uh, but other than it, it gets pretty well known uh, yeah. how the you know the Japanese uh, code of conduct towards uh, conduct towards uh, their prisoners was you know, yeah uh, quite against the Geneva Convention to, to say the least. Oh, well, they didn't sign it. <laughs> to, to say the least, yeah, they <laughs> didn't. Point, yeah, they know. didn't. <laughs> Fair point. Uh, I mean, in their in literally their defense, they said they didn't sign it because it would not have been advantage. It it would not be the to their advantage during war. They couldn't understand why one one would sign such a thing. Which yeah yeah, uh, disgusting actions happened. Uh, but that actually wasn't everybody on Wake Island, by the way. Like three hundred eighty people, like a lot of them civilians, were left on Wake to just kind of you know build up its defenses because this was now property of the Empire of Japan. And uh, these people would basically just be slaves for uh, half of the war, I think, in 1943. Yeah, I mean, uh, that, that was kind of like a, a boon for them. Uh, they, they won the island, and, oh, 
there's already uh, contractors there, you know, like construction crews. Uh, <coughs> like, yep. Okay, we don't have to bring in as many as ours. This is free labor. Yeah, they got to... Sorry to say. They got these guys to build, you know, their, their classic uh, coral and concrete bunkers, their pillboxes. All the things that you see in the later Pacific War to defend the island, uh, to make it just a hell trap for when the Americans come to retake it. A lot more people are going to get executed, too. It's uh, it's a very tragic tale for those that are left on Wake Island. And, uh, yeah, I mean, overall, as far as the legacy goes, I mean, this was, um, it was the first place the Americans gave the Japanese trouble. And um, it, it was they very... They hell in return. Yeah. Admirable job, and they caused a shit ton of casualties. And the fact that they managed to take down yeah. two um, <laughs> two warships, like with coastal guns, the way that yeah. they did. Well, Roosevelt Roosevelt called it the you know the Pacific Alamo. Uh, I don't know too much about the Battle of the Alamo. Just you know the legend of it, like mm. it is the uh, the default American defense. Like you know you can go no further. Like this is the the last line of defense. And yeah. Uh, I think I it's mean, like only like 250, 300. I, I'm going to upset some Americans. Well, I mean, Americans, uh, Americans like don't a, even. A few hundred Americans. I mean, come on. Like if, if you talk to the average day American, their view of how the Alamo thing went down is completely wrong too. I mean, like the Americans are the ones in the wrong. Like the Alamo is like, they make it this resounding story of like Americans defending. Like, I mean, sorry, you took the territory first. Like technically the Mexicans yeah, were not in the wrong. <laughs> like, yeah. Not to not to go too in depth of that the politics of it, uh, but it was a few hundred uh, American volunteers from Texas and and everywhere else as yeah. uh, an advance party from General Houston and just to hold the hold the Alamo so General Santa Ana and his four thousand uh, Mexican troops couldn't advance any further mm -hmm. until Houston was able to come in and reinforce and they held out for I believe a few days and basically died to the last man defending it and you know yep. they gave hell in return in the defense yeah and Billy Bob Thorne was Davy Crockett in it uh, yeah morale <laughs> that's true not a uh, some people say it's it's not terrible I, I mean I, it's, it's been a long time a good since film I've seen that's, it uh, historically accurate Oh, I'm sure it's, I mean, I'm sure it's not accurate as a, as a war film, but I mean, like, there, people need to let up on the accuracy of war films. Like, you know, you have to balance entertainment with the actual thing. It's like, I, I always defend the movie The Last Samurai. Like, yeah, the history is completely, it's nonsensical. It's it's completely off. But the feeling of the movie is there. It's <laughs> it's the feeling of, like, what, what that time felt like and stuff. Like, it's very, it's a very good film. Uh. And by God, Ken what Watanabe did good with the trend of it's always... Oh yeah, for sure. absolutely. But what, what's with the trend of there's always got to be a white guy who's the last of something? You know, the white like, savior complex, he's, he's, yeah. Tom Cruise was the last uh, samurai. Yeah, white savior complex. Yeah, that's it. Like uh, Tom Cruise, and you have Kevin uh, Costner, um, one of the greatest actors ever. Uh, uh, Dancing with Wolves. Yeah, that one you're thinking. Of? Well, Kevin Costner. It, yeah, it's not just Dancing with Wolves. He has. Uh, uh, there's two of them. There's two but, movies. Uh, he oh, does. The, best, like the, the last. The last Mohican. Oh my God! The last Mohican, <laughs> in, Daniel Day uh, Lewis. Him, him running through the, yeah, Daniel Day Lewis, uh, running through the forest with uh, two muskets that just conveniently uh, 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 reload themselves, and he's like hitting people from like two hundred yards, uh, two hundred, three hundred yards away with pinpoint oh accuracy. 
Oh, the, you know, this is totally random. Uh, but for people who don't like I, I had a before I was a Pacific War channel, I just had this YouTube channel called NBS History. And one of my most famous, even to this day, I think it has some of the most views is I did a, um, a film review of The Last Mohican with an American history teacher. And uh, he, basically what we said is he did the parts that are English and I did the viewpoint of the French because, you know, it's, uh, it's the war with Nouvelle France. Mm. And a lot of people loved my episode because they had no idea, you know, what was going on on the other side, right? Because most, most of the viewers are American. And, you know, I was like talking about like, what are the motivations, you know, behind like the French figure in the film? Why is he working with, you know, this Aboriginal mm-hmm. chief and all that? Yeah, and, because it's uh, between Americans and, and us as Canadians, like we, yeah. we consider them two different wars. They call it the, the French-Indian War yeah. and it's, you know a very small theater in comparison to us. We know it as the, the seven years war and mm-hmm. it was uh, as some consider the first world war. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. Americans have a completely different, cause it's not as important in their history. Well, obviously they have better history than us. They just have more stuff to talk about, but for, for Canadian history, this is like one of our big moments. So like we know this thoroughly. Yeah. And uh, I was actually, I After think hundreds of years yeah. of it being French property, like Canada becomes English. But yeah, I was like, I think I even say in the film review, something that like even Canadians don't know, they never talk about this, is before um, before the failure that Montcalm was, we had a Prussian general who had been hired to lead like the war. And he had worked with the natives in the early, like in the early days. And he was the one who had actually did a lot of the victories. I forget the name of the, the general. But, uh, yeah, like, as soon as he's gone and, like, Montcalm comes over, like, he, you know, he's unwilling to work with the Quebecois and he's unwilling to work with the natives because mm-hmm. he only respects, like, uh, European French uh, officers and soldiers. And that's kind of his downfall yeah, and all he that. Was, you know, the gentleman. Yeah, it, I mean, that's exactly what he was like. And, and, and the Quebecois were rural and <laughs> I mean that's true <laughs> it's true but but yeah you got to use the guys who know the land and that was that was his problem but anyway that goes way out of uh, this but, subject but yeah yeah I know that's it becomes a tangent if any if anybody's it's interested on topic though I mean yeah if anybody's interested go go check out my episode it was really yeah. and it was really uh, the yeah. English that uh took advantage of that uh later on in, like in the war of 1812 uh the the English saw the ruralness of the Canadian people as a strength and they started uh, creating units that fought like the natives, you know, go behind yep. enemy lines, like guerrilla tactics. And they were extremely effective in like uh, implementing psychological warfare as well. Yeah. Well, uh, Fascinating. In the war of 1812, the British had the upper hand when it came to treaties with the natives, because basically the natives were used to working with the British and the British had proven they weren't willing to like break treaties Wink, wink. I mean, it happens, yeah, but not just as for, much. Just for the American people, and that yeah. is one of the ultimate reasons for the uh, the American Revolution. It wasn't yeah. just the taxes, but the American people wanted to get into the Ohio Valley, of course, which yeah. the English had acquired from the French after their victory in the, the Seven Years' War. Yeah, that one always goes overlooked. You know, you always hear, oh, you know, taxation without representation, you know, but as, there was other issues. Yeah, as the the great man. Uh, Benedict Arnold. Oh, jeez. Uh, <laughs> oh, you, you oh, man. know you, who nope. I'm, I'm talking about. Uh, yeah, yeah, I know what you're talking about. giving us the, uh, the Ohio <laughs> Valley, or essentially killing our children before they're born. Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin, yeah. Okay, so what Ian's referring yeah, so, to. So, 
no one would know this, but uh, Canada People's History. Yeah. it's a great series. It, there's a very old series that was made to promote Canadian history for Canadians, and it's it's complete yeah, I think propaganda. It was the 90s. Uh, yeah. It was it was funded by uh, uh, the federal government. Yeah. Uh, uh, along with the CBC, like a lot of money was put into it, and it's oh, yeah. fairly. It's super fairly entertaining. Well done. It's super entertaining, but yeah, my yeah. god, it's a hundred percent propaganda. <laughs> it's so like, yeah. it's so on the tongue. But anyways, it's, yeah, it's entertaining though. But uh, I get, thank you. Wow, we really went off topic from uh, from Wake. <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, thanks for uh, joining we the from Wake to Benjamin Franklin. Thanks for joining the podcast to talk about the Battle of Wake. And, uh, you know, for all you guys out there. I I do want to say one thing about Wake before we sign off. Yeah, go Um, for it. So when they surrendered at when they surrendered at Wake, um, this is there's a polar opposite in morale for the Japanese people and the the American people. Uh, So, yeah, Wake defense. And that was, you know, one of the PR movements for uh, for the Americans being, you know, the valiant defense, like, okay, we're not giving up everywhere. But as Wake surrenders, at the same time, MacArthur is uh, retreating from Manila to Australia. Yep. And so it's a a huge downer for the American people. Yeah, okay, it's a double downer. officially are losing everywhere. And the Japanese, that, okay, like, we can't be stopped. We're taking the, we just took the Philippines, you know, like, the Americans' little defense on Wake, we took that. Not to mention the numerous other places, but uh, uh, Wake and uh, MacArthur coincided at the exact same time. Sad, yeah. It was a double whammy right at the same time, and it yeah, crippled man. morale. Yeah, yeah, it, it was, was a, devastating. A tough day. Yeah, FDR lost his mind about it. It really uh, pissed him off. Uh, but yeah, I just want to. There's s- a lot of hopes that uh, we had talked about that task force, uh, task force 14. Yeah. It, on paper, it was a great plan. They were going to ambush the the Japanese uh, fleet there uh, with three carriers, and as we know, three carriers can put out a force. Like that's what's used in Midway for the Americans, three carriers. So they could have done a, uh, some serious damage to the uh, the invading Japanese. And it would have been three versus but, two, uh, so they had odds. Yeah. Yeah. But. Uh, I just want to say to the audience, because uh, this is going out to the audio audience, who uh, I haven't catered to enough, honestly. You know, I have my YouTube channel of all the other work I do, but I'm trying now to consistently push at least a podcast a week uh, over for the guys, you know, on Spotify, Apple, to all those places. Just want to say, um, if you really like the channel, you know, go check out uh, my YouTube channel if you like the visual stuff. Or if you haven't already, you know, you can check out uh, the two podcasts I do. For Kings and Generals, so that's uh, Pacific War week by week. And I also have the um, Age of Conquest, Fall and Rise of China podcast, which is my favorite one, to be honest. But if you really want to support me and you want to go above and beyond, you can check out my Patreon account at www.patreon.com slash the Pacific War channel. And over there, I basically do exclusive podcasts, but based off of uh, what the patrons want. So every month I'll put out a poll and I'll just ask you like what do you want to hear about and I put in my own like ideas too but I'm really trying to get like someone to come up and say hey I want to hear about this and usually that happens and uh let's see the last time I did a two-part series on the entire history of the USS Enterprise it's pretty cool this month the poll's going right now and I think it's going to be on a subject I brought up about how the century of humiliation in China like formed the current PRC uh, People's Republic of China so I basically will talk about uh, 
Mao Zedong and uh, Xi Jinping. I am go I want to talk more about Xi Jinping today because I think people are interested in why he does things, <laughs> you know, the way he does. Cuz Yeah, I'm not going to say that cuz uh, the CCP will uh, never oh, sponsor me. <laughs> They're going to, I had to instinctively look at my window. Like, are they, are they going to kill us right now? And coming for me now. But yeah, that guy, uh, he, uh, he has a very dark history. A lot of stuff happened to his family, uh, during the reign of Mao Zedong. And, uh, the century of humiliation is kind of like this narrative that's wielded like a club, uh, all the time by him and other people before him, uh, like Mao Zedong and other leaders of the Potoboro in China. So it's, uh, it's, it's interesting. It's like the Chinese are using their former humi humiliating history to just bring up stuff today as a rationale for why they do the things that they do. But anyways, uh, again, thanks, Ian, for uh, being the guest on this podcast. Pleasure being here. And I don't know if, should I tell them, <laughs> should I give you a shout out? Because you technically have a YouTube channel. <laughs> Oh, with like a, a few World of Warships <laughs> videos and a couple video games. I mean, I've checked it out. <laughs> if anyone wants I, to do, I use my YouTube. If anyone to, wants to, honest, to hunt them down, YouTube as like a place to save videos because it, I'm able to save my videos uh, like from gameplay in 4K, and then I can share it with my buddies. <laughs> But yeah, like if you guys actually want to, uh, it'd be a fun game. You can go like look up Ian Smith I mean, on YouTube. It, it, yeah, I mean, if people like looking at my my video game footage, I mean, I'll publish more of it. Yeah, some of them are interesting. Yeah, I'm, there's I'm a few World of War. There's World of War. There's some World of Warship stuff there, and I think even the old LOL videos. Oh, our our League of Legends. Yeah, I got a uh, when we when we played in that tournament up against the pros. Uh, yeah, that one was funny. Yeah, so people can laugh at that. Younger days. Oh yeah, that's. Oh boy, were we. <laughs> Dumb. Oh, yeah. Dumb but uh, stating all of that, uh, this has been the Pacific War Channel. Over and out.